Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. As we near the end of our summer-long practice on eating and drinking, or what, what one writer that we love calls radically ordinary hospitality. And the last dimension of this practice up on the docket is eating and drinking with God, or what a lot of people call communion. Summer is my favorite time in the city. Every day I look forward to cycling home from work. It's about a mile from our office over on 13th to my house on 26th. And in between the office and my house are about 497 restaurants. And this time of year, as I cycle home around six at night, I ride past hundreds, if not thousands of Portlanders, literally spilling out, not only to the outdoor seating, but then onto the sidewalk and then into the street, loud, raucous, noisy, lot of laughter, a little bit tipsy, and it's 6 p.m. Um, and there's just something about eating outside in the heat of summer, around a table, with people that we love, food in our stomach, a glass of wine in our hand, if you're over 21, some of you are not. There's just something to that moment, a presence to the person across the table from you, to your own body and even your soul and even more to God. I mean, we live in one of the best cities in the world for food. People vacation here. I mean, every Sunday I meet people on a road trip or on vacation. What are you here for? To eat. I mean, literally, people fly here from all over the world to eat through our city. And I love that. It's one of my favorite things about our city. And there's just something in the deep in the psyche of the Rose City that says, August 6 p.m. must go eat outside with friends or family. And in this interior homing beacon, I would argue that we see not just a hunger and thirst for food. There are far cheaper ways to fuel the body. Even in the upsurge of the new stoicism and the whole food is fuel movement, still, even in that, I don't know of anybody with an IV next to the bed at night and like a nutrient solution to fuel the machine of your body. We have a desire for more than just fuel, but for what the writers of the New Testament call communion. For a life that is more than what my duplex neighbor said to me a few days ago as I was on our patio in the morning, he was walking to work, another day, another dollar. And then you get home, what's on Netflix, 11 p.m., time to plug in the machine for tomorrow. Is that really all there is? We crave a life of more, a life of communion, not only with other people, but with someone or something even deeper. Call that God, or call it spirituality, or call it soul, or whatever you want. And this ache in our city, and I think across the world, for communion, it goes wrong constantly. The abuse of food, and gluttony, obesity, body image, shame, eating disorders, the abuse of alcohol, and with it regret, and addiction, and even violence, hookup culture, the pressure to project an image at the table to make yourself look or sound smart or well-read or sophisticated or funny or whatever it is for your cultural kind of niche rather than just to relax into the safe place of community. Shallow, superficial relationships, loneliness even in a city of hundreds of thousands of people. And yet all of these missteps are exactly that. Missteps on the quest for communion. After all, food is at the heart of all that is wrong and all that is right in the world. Americans spend over $50 billion a year on dieting. Think about that, $50 billion to solve the problem of food gone awry. At any given moment, 25% of men and 45% of women are on a diet. American Christians, I read recently, spend more on dieting than on world missions while at the same time the average American family throws away something like $1,500 worth of food per year. Can you imagine what else we could do with all of that money? And this problem isn't just a one-off for you know, people who have a problem with like eating for comfort, not me, but other people. Um, it's systemic. 
It's the way our government has subsidized foods that are unhealthy for the environment and for the human body, the way that healthy food is out of reach of the poor due to that and other reasons. It's industrialized farming, it's erosion of the topsoil, it's animal cruelty, it's food-related diseases such as diabetes and hypertension. Now we're even reading dementia. And none of this comes as a surprise since in the Garden of Eden story, what is the frame of our worldview, what was the original temptation that gave rise to the human condition as we know it? Yeah, it was to eat from the wrong tree. However you read Genesis, if you read it literally or more mythologically, either way, you have to wrestle down the fact that the temptation in the origin story that is the frame of our worldview is not to the triumvirate of money, sex, or power. It is to an even more basic, more primal drive that so often spins out of control to food. And yet, at the same time, Food is also at the heart of all that is good and beautiful and true in the world, and especially in our city. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Cue all of those stats from last month about how human beings are at their happiest when they are around a table with a meal and family and friends. And a statistical level, really the only way to level up from that to more joy is to move that table outside in the summer, which is great news in August bad news the rest of the year, but great news in August. So all that's right and all that's wrong meet at the table. Is there a practice from the way of Jesus to quell that ache that I would argue we all have for a right relationship with food and the planet that it is derived from with other people in our community and with God himself? Yes, there is, and we call it communion. It is the collision of all that is wrong and all that is right, of all the pain and the dysfunction and the wrongness of the world with all the joy and the wholeness and the rightness of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. It is where the two meet and the former is drowned out by the latter. On that note, let's start off tonight in Luke chapter 22. All of our practices are based on the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. This one is no exception. Let's read the story of where it all started. Chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want us to prepare? Well, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the rabbi asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my apprentices? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left, found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, and I love this line, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." And he took bread, gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine at the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves, wait, who is it? And a dispute then also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Not a great time, guys. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I, I love this line, I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a lot in there. I just wanna call your attention to one well-known line. Do this 
in remembrance of me. How many of you have heard that line before? Yeah, a lot of you. I would argue that is one of the most misread of all Jesus' teachings. Two things you need to get your head around with that line in particular. One, the pronoun this, do this in remembrance of me, doesn't just refer to the bread and the cup. It refers to the whole meal and more, to life around a table in community with other apprentices of Jesus, with Jesus himself present as the rabbi or the teacher and the host of the home. Jesus is not just saying, do a cracker and a sip of juice in remembrance of me. He's saying, do life around a table with other apprentices of Jesus, with me right there at the center. What last week Chris called dining room table Christianity. Secondly, get your head around this. The qualifier in remembrance of me doesn't just mean in memory of me, like it sounds in English, but in actualized awareness of me. The tricky thing about this practice of communion is that in it, time is all mashed up. So past, present, and future all elide together. At the table, we look backward to Jesus, not just to his death, to all of Jesus, his life, his kingdom work, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Spirit, like all of that to Jesus. We also look in our mind and our body and around the table to our community to Jesus' presence in the here and now. And then we also look forward over the horizon to Jesus' return. Um, all of the prophets from Isaiah down to John the Revelator, upwards of a thousand years later, envision the future as a meal around a table, what the Hebrews called the messianic banquet, meaning a giant kinfolk party for every tribe, tongue, and nation with Jesus at the head of all of it. You think that table is long? Imagine one from here to China or something. That's the dream, the future. Paul later writes that when you eat and you drink, you, quote, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Past, present, future, all allied together. The theologian N.T. Wright in his little book, The Meal Jesus Gave Us, writes this. The hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing that past story and the divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes part of the story and receives the benefit from such actualization. I love that word, actualization. To remember, to do this in remembrance of me, is to actualize that past and that future in the present. Um, here's a clumsy analogy. Right now, all three of my kids are in swim lessons because they are Oregonians, which means they are about to drown at any moment in the water, okay? Some of us grew up in California and know how to swim. Others of you are natives, and we pray for you, all right? So I don't want my children to die. So all three of my children, we're like driving every day out to freaking Lake Oswego in traffic, but it's to not die, okay? So they're in swim lessons right now at my mom's, you know, this this pond thing by my mom's house. And in swim lessons, and I work with the kids often on a day off or whatever, you hear this common refrain, remember, remember, remember when you take a breath to look back and over your shoulder, not up and <gasps> like, like back over the shoulder, right? Remember, short breath, right? Remember, torso, right, left. Who was on the swim team and is a certified lifeguard? Fun fact, I'm just saying, all right? <laughs> And you say all of this, remember. And, and when I say to my children in the water, like, remember, I'm not just saying call to mind an event from the past. I'm saying drag that event from the past, a swim tutorial, into the present. And I'm not just saying envision the future when you don't die in the pond, but you swim with your dad in the ocean or in a triathlon or whatever. I'm, I'm saying envision that future and drag that future into the here and now. Drag past and future into the present and let that give shape to how you move through the world in your body. Does that make sense? 
clumsy analogy, I know, but my children are still alive. We're okay, all right? My point is, I think that is what Jesus is getting at with do this, do life around a table with other apprentices of Jesus and me at the table. Do this in remembrance of me. Let the past and the future break into the present and shape the trajectory of your life. Now, this practice, whatever you wanna call it, communion is one of six names for it, five of which come from the New Testament and one of which comes from later in church history. In all six names, there is a reality that we are to remember, that we are to actualize, all right? So let's frame that. Let's have that kind of frame our time together tonight. Let's take them one at a time. The first, if you're taking notes, and most common in the tradition that I grew up in is communion. This comes from the Greek word. You might not read that in your English Bible, but it's there. It comes from the Greek word koinonia. You can hear a little bit of the transliteration there, koinonia, communion or community. In the English Bible, it's also translated as community, depending on your version, or fellowship, or participation, or sharing. For example, it's used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 of this practice, quote, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in, is what the NIV has, in Greek it's koinonia, it can also be translated communion with the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a, same word, koinonia, participation in or communion or community with the body of Christ. And then here's the imagery. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body for we all share the one loaf. This is where the name communion comes from. Some church traditions, in particular my Anglican friends, have holy communion as if to say this meal isn't just any ordinary meal. It's holy. There's something special about it. And from this first name, we remember, we actualize that at the table, we are to commune, to have community with, to fellowship, to participate. First off with Jesus, right? The whole point of the table is to actualize Jesus' presence as you eat and drink, to attune and give your full attention to Jesus, to be present to him. David Fitch in a beautiful little book on communion, writes this, the Lord's table is about presence. Surely it's about eating, but ultimately it's a discipline that shapes a group of people to be present to God's presence in Christ around the table. Here we have perhaps the single best opportunity to train ourselves to tend to his presence for our lives. If we can recognize his presence at work around the table, we will be able to recognize his work in our lives as well. But without such a discipline, we will always be tempted to take God's work into our own hands instead of recognizing his work, submitting to it, and participating in it. The table trains us to discern Christ's presence in all the other places we eat during the week. So it's about communion with Jesus. But not only that, also, and little to nothing was said about this in the church tradition that I grew up in, also with each other. As I said, communion and community are two English translations of the exact same Greek word, koinonia. Two dimensions of one reality. So the idea behind this practice is to enjoy Jesus' company, but also that of your friends or your family, to be present to Jesus and to be present to the person across the table from you, to put away your phone and your to-do list and this and just to commune. That's the first name. Secondly, the breaking of bread. This isn't a name you hear much anymore. It's all over the New Testament. It's the writer Luke's favorite name for the practice in his gospel and in the book of Acts. For example, we read, we already read in Luke 22, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, as well as the follow-up in Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia, to fellowship, to communion, and to the breaking of bread. There it is again. Here's another one from Acts 20. On the first day of the week, which was Sunday in the Greco-Roman calendar, was kind of the Monday of the week, late at night, we came together to break bread. Now, have you ever read Luke and been a little confused? Like, is he writing about communion, or is he writing about a meal together as a church? And the answer is 
Yes, because at the time there was zero difference between the two. But here's, I love this name for it, because the breaking of bread is a bit of double entendre. Bread, which was a staple of the first century Mediterranean diet, this is millennia before the demonic infestation of gluten intolerance, like, which we rebuke in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, it was millennia before, it was a staple in the diet, but remember, this is years before like the bread knife from Cutco with the serrated edge or whatever. Bread had to be broken before you could eat it, and there was no knife. You tore off a piece with your bare hands, and then you handed the loaf to the person next to you at the table. In the same way, Jesus was broken, was torn apart at the cross for us, and handed to you and me at the table, for us to receive the gift of life. In the breaking of bread, we remember, and please listen carefully, that all life comes through death. You are alive right now. You are breathing in and breathing out because something died for you. An animal, a plant, without that, you would die. Food is a daily reminder of sacrifice, of our interdependence on one another on the planet itself that we are not independent. We literally need the death of something else just to survive. And in the breaking of bread, we remember, I mean, this is, could God have come up with a more tangible, black and white, visceral message to you every single day, one, two, three times a day, you need somebody else's sacrifice just for you to live. In the breaking of bread, we remember that all of our life comes through Jesus' death on the cross, that we are dependent on him, we're dependent on other people, from the farmer to the grocer to the truck driver to the new season's checker, or Trader Joe's if you're on a budget, um, which we are, um, and the sun and the rain just to breathe in the life of right now. Do you see it? Food is not just fuel, it is so much more, it is full of significance. I love that line in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste it. I don't think that's a metaphor or a simile, I think that's straight up. I don't think that food is a sign of God's goodness toward you, I think it is God's goodness toward you. Right in front of you, on your plate, at the table. Which leads to name number three, if you're still taking notes, which is the most popular across the world today, and that is the Eucharist. This is also from the Greek, a word Eucharisto, which is just, um, it sounds kind of fancy and sacramental now in English. Originally, it, was just, it just meant Thanksgiving or the Thanksgiving meal. It comes from the same formula in Luke, but it's in all four Gospels. We already read it once in Paul and Corinthians. Um, the formula is he took bread, gave thanks, the root there is Eucharisto, and broke it and gave it to them. Very early on, I mean, already by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the church started using this as a name, the Eucharist, again, in the original native tongue, just the Thanksgiving or the Thanksgiving meal. And that name stuck around, even when the church spread um, out into the Latin world and then later the German world, and now here we are in English, people, it just stuck around, the Eucharist. And in the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving, we remember just how much we have to be thankful for. Again, that all that we enjoy with God and from God, it's all gift. Nothing is earned, nothing is deserved. I was with a friend of mine who's not a follower of Jesus that I love to pieces, great friend. And we were driving, by, we're about to move in a week, my family and I, we were driving by our new place and it's great. And uh, he said, oh man, you deserve it. You do so much good in the world. Like you send out so many positive vibes. I was like, cool. Um, <laughs> but he's like, man, you deserve it. And he's phenomenal. I was quiet in that moment. But what I was thinking to myself was, that's great, I get it, thank you, but that is so not my worldview. I do not deserve a roof over my head, much less a nice one. Everything is grace. Everything is gift. It is all the sheer mercy of God, and entitlement is a surefire recipe to misery and discontentment and 
Ah, gratitude is the path to life and it is the one idea that corresponds to reality. One of my favorite things to do at the Comer House and with our Bridgetown community is just to go around the table. We do it every Sabbath and a lot of midweek nights and just, what are you grateful for today? What are you grateful for this week? What are you grateful for in this season of life? This week, everybody said, the puppy, except (laughs) yours truly. (laughs) Not what I'm grateful for, right? And we do that, and it's a little bit cheesy. Like I'm with my, you know, kids, and it's like, well, we're grateful for whatever, you know? But we do that to index our heart toward gratitude, which is the only right and fitting orientation to life in the world to deeply enjoy, the center word there, joy, life with Jesus in his world, the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving. Fourth, if you're still taking notes, is the agape or the agape feast. Um, Agape is another Greek word for, anybody know? Love, so um, more literally in English, it's the love or the love feast. That doesn't translate quite as well. It sounds very 1970s San Francisco, you know? Though you were there, you were in San Francisco and I've seen pictures of Peter, our elder down there with his hair, he looked like the Unabomber. It was crazy, (laughs) but uh, fantastic. Yeah, big old beard. Oh, I would have loved to have known you guys. Anyway, we digress. It just, the love feast, it just sounds so immoral, but it wasn't at the time. And um, this title or this name is only used one time in the New Testament in Jude. In context, he's writing about false teachers and he writes, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. And he goes on. So it's only used once in the New Testament, but it's used a lot by the early church fathers and mothers for several hundred years. In fact, after the Eucharist, it's the most common name for quite a while. And in the love feast or the agape feast, we remember that this meal isn't just a meal, it is a feast, it's a party, it's a celebration. We need feasts, am I right? We need parties, we need celebrations to like give some buoyancy to our emotional health up against the turbulent water of life. I mean, can you imagine a life with no parties? Like seriously, no. All, pretty much, anthropologists argue that pretty much all, and you don't get that a lot, all cultures utilize special meals to memorialize special moments in celebration. Here in the U.S., it's, you know, Christmas dinner, it's Easter lunch, it's the wedding reception, it's the anniversary dinner, it's a birthday party, which is analogous a little bit to how time is all mashed up. Think of a birthday party, you're like, we remember when you were born a long time ago or whatever, and we are here in the moment with you, and we look forward to the next year or decade of your life, and let's eat sugar and carbs, right? There's something, but there's something to, there's an impulse in the human heart. When something good happens, it's like we're hardwired to throw a party. Like we have to celebrate, open a bottle of wine, let's go out to dinner, have somebody over, I'm on a budget, buy an extra thing of Top Ramen, let's just do it, (laughs) whatever it is, right? Put on the good music, whatever it is. Now we'll get into this in a few minutes, but when this love feast turned hundreds of years later into a sacrament in the Middle Ages, at least in the West, it became, it turned into, there was kind of a metamorphism into this sober and somber and introspective and individualized practice. But originally it was a feast. I mean, Paul has a problem with people getting drunk at it. We sure solved that problem. Tiny little cup of grape juice. Nobody's getting drunk anymore at Bridgetown Church. Problem solved, right? One sip, no more, you're done. There's always the occasional person in who just starts to drink a lot of them, but it's, no, it's not helpful. There is a time, now that said, listen carefully, there is a time and a place for the quiet, introspective work of repentance over your sin and meditation on its cost to Jesus at the cross. Absolutely, don't misread me, but listen carefully. We are to do that work before we come to the table, not at the table. Paul is explicit about this. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, quote, everyone ought to examine themselves. There's that language of introspection. Examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink the cup. 
Now again, we read that and we imagine communion in our practice where you walk down from the back aisle to the cracker and the juice at the front of the stage, right? And we think before, like en route down to the front of the stage. That's not what he's saying. This was a meal on Sunday night with 50 or 60 rowdy Corinthians in some wealthy person's backyard, right? So he's saying before you show up Sunday night, before you get off work and you show up for the love feast with your church, first examine yourself. Take a little time that morning during the week. Is there anything in my life that is out of sync with my apprenticeship to Jesus? Am I crosswise with anybody else in the community and I need to make things right? Do that hard work and then come to the table. The table is what comes after that hard work of repentance and the, 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 the right heaviness to that moment. The table is what comes after Afterwards, then you celebrate because of my repentance on my part and more importantly because of the mercy of God through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I'm good. I'm righteous. Not just in the 80s word, but like I'm right with God. I'm right with the people to my right and left. All is right again in the world. Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's throw a party. Philip Yancey writes this, this table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers and sisters alive. That's it. That is the heart of joy and gratitude and celebration and party mode. I, I have Sonos. Anybody have Sonos? Like party mode is where like, does it, you don't have it? It's, a, it's an app on your phone. It's not, I have it. It's amazing. It will change your life. If you don't have Sonos, it will change your life for $190. It will change your life. <laughs> and if you get more than one, you like click a little thing that says party mode and all of the speakers in your house come on at extra high volume. It's awesome. That's the love feast, right? There it's party mode in the kingdom of God. Now, fifth, stay, you still with me? You still out there? You're like, I was a little bored, but you had me at party mode, okay? <laughs> fifth, stay with me. The fifth name is the Lord's Supper. I'm guessing that you have heard that language before. It's straight out of 1 Corinthians 11 as well. That's because that's um, the most in-depth teaching on this practice in the New Testament. Paul writes, quote, so then when you come together, and he means for church, is it not the Lord's Supper you eat for, I'm sorry, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Answer, it's not good. Go read it on your own time. Okay, there's a lot here. When you come together, the church would come together, as I said, Sunday nights for supper. And that's a, a weird English translation, unless if you're from the Midwest. Dinner is really what we would say, right? Um, the church would come together for the Lord's Supper. Another translation, Jesus' dinner. And again, it was not a snack. It was not a bread and crack. It was a meal around a table. And it was the center of gravity for the church. Notice, when you come together, in Acts 20, he says, when you come together to eat, not to sing, not to listen to the teaching. All of that was in there, and we're for all of it. But when you come together to eat, and he calls this practice the Lord's Supper or Jesus' dinner. Now, there's a whole backstory here we don't have time to get into. We'll cover it next week. The short version is this idea from the ancient Near East of a covenant meal. When when you would make a covenant, which again, this is millennia before the modern legal system and contract law, but when you would make a covenant to enter into a specific kind of relationship that had a list of commitments with God or with one of the gods or with a business partner, you would make a sacrifice to the gods or to God on behalf of your partner, and then you would cut that covenant, you would make the sacrifice, then you would eat that sacrifice at the temple in the presence of God and in the presence of your covenant partner. And that covenant meal was an act of commitment to honor the covenant that you just made, okay? Now this is not a modern frame of reference, it's an ancient one, and this is what's in Paul's mind with, it's in what we think is in Jesus' mind because the Passover was a covenant meal, and it's what's in Paul's mind here with the Lord's Supper or Jesus' dinner. His idea is this has to be an act of commitment. You can't just show up 
like put a little pasta on the table, open a bottle of wine, do your thing, and call it the Lord's Supper. Notice what he says. It's not the Lord's Supper. You think it's the Lord's Supper. It's actually not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For it to become the Lord's Supper, it has to be a covenant meal. It has to be an act of commitment for you again to take up your cross, to follow Jesus, to leave behind your sin, and in faith to place your full trust in Jesus and in his vision of what it means to be a human being. A scholar with an absolutely fantastic name, John Mark Hicks, has this to say, and I think my favorite little book on this practice, quote, when we eat and drink, we renew our covenant with God. We pledge ourselves to keep the covenant. It is a moment of rededication and recommitment. In the context of the worship experience, we voice our commitment to live worthy of the gospel. We vow to take up our cross, call Jesus Lord, and follow him into the world as obedient servants. The supper is the ritual moment when we renew the covenant vow we made in our baptism. That language in the middle, to live worthy of the gospel, that he's riffing there on Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 11. That makes a lot of people nervous, where Paul writes that we are to eat um, and drink in a worthy manner. And a lot of people read that and think, what, what is Paul saying? Is he saying, I have to be worthy to come to the table? Um, and most scholars argue, no, not at all. The whole point is that you're not worthy, that Jesus died on your behalf because of that. But what's right about that impulse is how most scholars interpret that, is we do have to give worth to the table. There's a gravity to it. There's a a seriousness, not a bad seriousness, but a good one, there's a sense of you honor the table. You honor the body and the blood. You honor Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. You don't treat it, treat it flippant or cavalier or you do your own thing or you manipulate it or you warp it or you corrupt it to your own end. No, you come face to face with Jesus. If your life is anything like mine, then there's a tension between Jesus' vision of human flourishing and your vision of human flourishing. And there's definitely a chasmic tension between his vision and our city's vision of human flourishing. At the table, we make a decision to again recommit to apprentice under Jesus. And in the areas where we have unanswered questions or we don't really get our head around Jesus' vision yet, or we're not sure, or we have doubt, whether it's money or whether it's sex. I mean, talk about a cosmic difference between Jesus' vision of human flourishing and our city's vision of human flourishing. When it comes to sex, it's 180 degrees. You will never get Jesus to baptize the progressive vision of sex. He was a celibate Jewish rabbi whose teachings on sexuality are the most intense of any teacher in the entire Bible and I think the most beautiful and honoring to the body and to sexuality and to human flourishing. But they are literally 180 degrees from what we hear every single day in this city. So at some point, you are faced with the same temptation that Adam and Eve were faced with, to redefine good and evil by yourself based on the voice in the back of your head or the voice of somebody out there rather than to trust Jesus' vision of human flourishing and good and evil. And to find out, does sin lead to human flourishing like our city thinks it does? Or does it lead to death? And does obedience to Jesus, that dangerous word, obedience, that is anathema in our city, is it actually the way to what Jesus called the life that is truly life? My point is, we all have questions, we all have doubt, we all have tension, we're all in process, I get it, this is a safe place. But when you come to the table, there is a seriousness to that moment. You don't just show up and you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or you're doing things or you're in disobedience or whatever, well, I have my thing, whatever, and you eat and you drink. Either it's not the Lord's Supper in that moment, or worse, it is, and what Paul later writes in Corinthians 11, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And he goes on, there's this gnarly line in there, 
For this reason, some of you are sick and others have died. Now, we don't even know exactly what he's saying there. I don't think it's like, you know, God is up in heaven, strike you dead. But there, there is something. God is by default compassionate, but God is also holy. And when you step into covenant with the God who made your body, made your mind, made humanity, made the universe itself, there is a beautiful weight to that moment. And you are invited to trust him over yourself and to recommit your life into his hands. And that is not something to treat with a flippant, cavalier attitude, but with a healthy weight where you re-covenant with God. And not only with God, but again, same as the communion thing, with each other as well. Notice that in context, that scripture we read in Corinthians, Paul's not dealing with the problem of sexuality in that spot, he is in others, he's dealing with the problem of injustice. The backstory behind, there's all sorts of backstory I don't have time for, but behind Corinthians 11, it's in Corinth, which is the city on the Greek isthmus, and in Greco-Roman society, the dinner party was called a symposium, and there was a, there was a cultural architecture to it where the wealthy ate in one room and the slaves and the servants ate in another and waited on the wealthy, where after dinner there was a second part to the meal that was like a, they called it a convivia, where we get the word convivial, and it was a drinking party, where the women and the children then left the room and the slaves came back in to the men and it was a kind of striptease and sex worker and drunken like orgy. And this was just normal. This wasn't like some crazy thing in the West Hills of Hollywood. This was just like the norm in Paul's world. And some of that, not all of that, but some of that cultural norm is seeping into the Corinthians' practice of the Lord's Supper. Not so much the sexuality part there, but the rich who are off work that day um, show up early, drink all the best wine, get a little bit drunk, eat all the food. The poor show up after a long, hard day of work. Remember, it's the work day at night for dinner, hungry, thirsty, and it's all gone, right? And there's all this socioeconomic injustice behind it, and there's racial tension behind that story, and Paul is just not into it at all because it's the exact opposite of Jesus' vision for this practice. Think about the original Lord's Supper. Jesus is there at the table as the host, right? As that, the role of the wealthy host of the table. And then at the end, he takes off his robe, he takes on a towel, the garb of the slave, and he starts to wash the feet. I was, this is a gross story. I was at the, remember, I'm clean, that's why I don't like dogs, right? So I was at the post office a few days ago, and I was waiting to ask this question, and this person in front of me just had sandals on, and their feet were so gross. Just like, God bless them, but <laughs> wow. And I just, and I was thinking about this teaching, and I was thinking, man, like, the washing of feet? We think of that as this kind of like Christianese, like kind of, that would not have been fun at all. I was just looking at this person's feet thinking, Jesus, wow. Wow, I'm so glad that we no longer live in a sandal culture. I'm tennis shoes for the rest of my life, right? But I mean, this, was, this was a bit humiliating. It was, it was the nitty gritty. I mean, it was just there, right? And this is the example of Jesus. It's hard to get our head around, but Jesus' design for the Lord's Supper was as an act of social justice. Again, we think of social justice through the lens of government and welfare and NGOs and nonprofits, which is great. That's millennia ahead of its time. In the first century, none of that existed. Social justice was done for the most part through the church, and the Lord's Supper was the primary vehicle to feed the poor in every local church. We think that's the backstory to Acts chapter 6, which we think is the origin story to the office of deacon, where they're waiting on tables and there's a dispute over this, that, or the other because the poor every day would show up for the love feast and they at least had a meal from the church of God and the rich would share with the poor and so on. This, my point is, this is the meal, the Lord's Supper, Jesus' dinner, the covenant meal where we come to the table and there's a healthy gravity to it and we recommit to our covenant with Jesus and with the community of Jesus there at the table. Finally, last name, and then we'll move on, is the mass. 
Um, this is the one name that isn't used in the New Testament. It's much later, depending on who you read, but nearer to the Middle Ages. After the gospel um, and the church spread to Rome and into the Latin language later, um, the liturgy, which was later developed around the Lord's Supper, was it ended with this Latin phrase, ita missa est, or in the English, go, you are sent out. Missa, that word in the middle, is from the same root word that we get the word mission. And later this phrase, ita missa est, was just shortened to the mass. Ita missa est, the mass, for slang. And that's what our Catholic brothers and sisters call it to this day. And from this name we remember that the Jesus we follow, the covenant that we're in, is with a Jesus who broke himself open and poured himself out for the world. And we are called to follow his example, to break ourselves open, to pour ourselves out for our community, our roommate, our spouse, our family members, our coworker, the poor in our neighborhood, and our city, and around the world. What a great way to end the meal, by the way. I don't think we should like bring back the Latin. That's a little bit pretentious and too East Coast for us. But go, you are sent out. I like that. Like, end your dinner with your community this week. Go, you're sent out. Go, break yourself. Follow Jesus' example. Break yourself open. Pour yourself out for the life of the world. So, to recap, six names, all of which have something to remember or actualize. One, communion. Two, the breaking of bread. Three, the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving. The love feast, the Lord's Supper, and the Mass. Now, notice, the common denominator in five of the six the five that stem from the New Testament itself, is they all envision this practice as a meal, not a cracker and juice, right? Eat and drink, not taste and sip. Which, and New Testament scholars and historians are unanimous. There is pretty much no doubt that for hundreds of years, this practice was a full-on meal around a table, usually, but not always, in a home. Which raises the question, okay, how, how did the meal become the mass? How did a love feast around a table, 20, 30, 40 people crammed into the back of a house, food there, active social justice, leftovers for the poor, become, turn into this quiet contemplative sacrament, that's not language used at all in the New Testament, and I have issues with it, in a church building on Sunday? I'm glad you asked. Let's pretend like you asked, right? Um, thought experiment. If somebody were to ask you, hey, will you text me a picture of your church? I would be really interested to see what you would text them. Um, my guess is that most people would text, uh, you know, a picture of First Baptist from the street, or those of you with a drone from like a pie, or whatever the thing is. Or um, more than likely, a picture of this moment right now, of worship by singing or the gathering. Um, go to pretty much any church website in the Western world, and the homepage is a picture of the Sunday morning experience with people singing. And again, that's great. I'm not against it at all. We're all for it, especially at the seven. I love how you sing. But the earliest picture that we have of the church is the Fractio Panis Fresco, a famous painting on the wall of a catacomb underneath Rome that dates to the early second century, like right around the 110s. And it is a picture of a church. Notice, it's not hundreds of people around a stage, it's six people, uh, seven people. <laughs> Sorry, the night is late. Seven people around, it's a bit hard to tell due to the you know, kind of wear and tear, but around a table, turned to face each other, and on the table there is wine, there's fish in the middle, and then there's bread over to the right. That was how people thought of church for hundreds of years. Now, there were megachurches from the very beginning. That's not a new American thing. The church in Jerusalem, by Acts chapter 4, was at least 5,000 people strong. But across the empire, it was illegal to worship Jesus for hundreds of years. So most of the time, the church was in hiding. It was, I mean, it was literally like punk rock. It was against the law. And so you were hiding underground in a catacomb at 5 a.m. in the morning or in a house or in a back room of a store. And for centuries, the love feast was the norm. It was the center of gravity for the church. Eventually, um, the worship of Jesus was legalized, and depending on which historian you read, most argue that Constantine's conversion in the fourth century was a political power play. It was because oh, by that time, it was the tipping point. Over half of the empire had started to follow Jesus and 
some way, shape, or form, but it was technically illegal, and so he had to, quote, convert and make it legal and the religion of the empire and all of that. In that moment, a lot went right, but a lot went wrong. And um, eventually, the church now, millions of people moved out of the home into the basilica or a converted temple and then started to erect cathedral after, after cathedral all over the Roman Empire. In 364 AD, the Council of Laodicea forbade the love feast in the church building. You had to do it off grounds. And I'll talk about why in a minute. And then in 692, at the Council of Trulin, it was banned altogether never to really return to the Western church. It was a, tra I would argue, it was a tragic moment. Now, haters gonna hate. You know, all of you are like, yeah, the church is corrupt. What it, it is, but let's talk about why. There were practical, pastoral, and theological reasons for this shift. Practical, it's one thing to feed 20 or 30 people in a house. It's another thing to feed thousands of people in a cathedral. The church in Jerusalem, the kind of original mega, got around this with the both and rhythm of, quote, in the temple and house to house. That's the line from Acts 2. They came together at the temple, which was gigantic. Thousands of people for, you know, teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or whatever else, worship by singing, we don't know exactly. And then they subdivided into, our guesses, hundreds of house churches. And we read in Acts 2, they broke bread from house to house every single day. That's the model that we operate off of here here at Bridgetown, in the temple, so to speak, at First Baptist Church by the hundreds on Sundays, and then from, we have 70 house churches or Bridgetown communities during the week. Now, if you don't have house churches or Bridgetown communities, that's not an option. So there's the practical. Then there was the pastoral. Um, you've read Jesus' biography. Jesus was just eating and drinking with all sorts of really scary people. And that was just his heart posture of hospitality, just how whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you think about God and life and morality, whatever your vision, you are welcome at the table with Jesus of Nazareth. Now this is the heart posture of Jesus and therefore the heart posture of God. And so it moved on into the early church and the love feast was socially porous. It was for the first couple hundred years, it was open to pretty much anybody, which is great, but that made it rife for abuse easy picking for a false teacher, ripping off the naive for money, or for kind of sin or false doctrine, or for the rich, you know, ripping off the poor, or people getting drunk, like it was just, there were all sorts of problems and issues with the love feast, because it turns out that even when you follow Jesus, if you put a lot of followers of Jesus together, we do some screwy things. Who would have thought, right? Is your community anything like mine? It's not heaven on earth. It's a little bit of both, right? So on and so forth. And then you have theological reasons that I don't have time to lay out, and none of you really care. But um, there were ways that Platonic Greek philosophy moved into Middle Age theology, and there's all sorts of, you know, kind of Greek behind it and Latin behind it, the accidentia and the substantia, and, and the way that the bread became, the, there was all this debate and controversy over Jesus' line, this is my body, um, and this is my blood, and I don't have time to get into that but it goes to the zenith of the corruption of this practice in the 14th century. There have been some highs and some lows in church history. That was, I think, kind of the ultimate low. At, it, at the worst of the worst, the priest said the mass in Latin, nobody even spoke Latin anymore, behind a screen, facing away from the church, and was the only one to eat the bread. And it was not even mystical anymore, it was magical and weird, right? So the reformers and the Protestant Reformation, which was, if you don't know church history, was this great sweeping reform with all sorts of issues, but reform movement through the church in the West. And the reformers from Luther in Germany to Tyndale in England to Calvin in Switzerland and France, um, the main thing that really sparked this reformation, at least for a lot of them, was the corruption of this practice. And brilliant, courageous men and women made a stand against the corruption. And the reformers got a lot of great work done in our theology of communion to kind of get us back on track. But sadly, they never really got to our practice of communion. You have a few, um, in particular from the Anabaptist tradition, who went all the way back to the origins. The Moravians in 1450s Bohemia, the Brethren in Switzerland, and then later pre-colonial America moved back to the love feast, and still to this day, we have a couple that was at church this morning that grew up in a Brethren church, and they still practice the love feast. You have the Quakers, it's a George Fox people here tonight. So, wow, wow there you have it. 
So, you know, outsiders hear about Quakers and hear Quakers don't practice the Lord's Supper or whatever. It's not actually true. Um, best as I can get my head around it, Quakers just believe that every meal with other followers of Jesus is the Lord's Supper. Frankly, that's not all that bad of theology. But for whatever reason, ever since the Reformation, it's still on the fringe, never at the center. It never, this kind of back to the meal never has caught on, at least in the West, to the point that, my, all that to say, if you're here and you're like, I never even knew that this was originally a meal around a table, you're not alone. In fact, that's, that was me for most of my life. That's most of the people to your right and left. Most people in the West don't even realize that this never started out as a sacrament. That's all way later language. Never started out as a cracker and juice in a quiet, somber moment in front of a stage on a Sunday. It was a raucous, la it was party mode on Sonos. And it was a celebration and it was a covenant to follow Jesus again with your community. It was an act of social justice and it was a call to break yourself open and pour yourself out in the week ahead. So, we, my friends, are faced with the decision. The original practice of communion is incongruent with how we practice it at Bridgetown Church. So we have to ask the question, what should we do or not do about it? Of course, one option is we just listen to a, an hour-long theology and history lesson, and we think that was weird, and then we just move on and just keep on back to business as usual. Hopefully, you know, that's just not how we want to follow Jesus. For years now, we've been thinking about a change in how we practice communion. Um, seven years ago, is anybody around that long ago? Seven, yeah, some of you. Seven years ago, we taught through 1 Corinthians, and there was a key moment in the life of our church, in my life, when we got to chapter 11, and I'm teaching through, and I'm doing all this reading and research around, for the first time really in my life, around this practice, and I was rocked. This is when I was first exposed to all of the history and the theology behind it, and it was really my first, like, whoa, shock and awe moment. And um, we changed how we practice this at that, if you were here seven years ago. We stood up one Sunday and said, we need to make a change. We started to practice the Lord's Supper every single week. We started to practice it all at the same time together, eat and drink at the same time. We started at that point to put it at the end of the gathering as the climax of our time together and so on. What we really wanted to do seven years ago was to move the whole thing from Sunday to our communities, from stage to a table. And yep, but there were reasons that we made the decision not to, mostly practical and pastoral. A ton of people at that point in our church's story were still not in a Bridgetown community. And so we just have been sitting on it for seven years in the back of my mind and our leadership just gnawing at us. Like we don't practice this, how it was set up by Jesus to go forward. And I've just been thinking about this. Um, some of you know my own journey into life around a table and community. I grew up in the mega church. I'm an introvert, that whole thing of like come on Sunday, listen to an interesting, hopefully, talk, and then just do your own thing with Jesus the rest of the week. I loved that. I miss those days. They were wonderful. When I say they were wonderful, not for my apprenticeship to Jesus. They were wonderful just for my pleasure, all right? Um, I'm, but when I started to move in, we, you know, moved into a neighborhood, and uh, we had an elder by the house next to us, and like when we just started to do life together around a table in community, which again, for some of you is old news. You grew up that way for me, Mr. Introvert, grew up in a Sunday thing. That was a whole new reality for me. It changed my life. And it kept just gnawing at me. What this practice, a weekly meal with my community, has gotta be one of the most mundane, easy things. It's not sexy, it's not glamorous. There's not this emotional or spiritual high at the end of the night but yet it's changed my life. What is it? And it did not hit me until just more recently. It did not hit me, oh, I know why it's changed my life. This is communion. This is the breaking of bread. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the love feast. This, oh, that's what this is. We've now been in community for 10 years, the oldest members of my community. We're a decade in this year, and it's changed my life. A weekly meal with the same 12 people who now have 18,000 children. <laughs> Actually, just 12, but that is a lot, all right? This practice has changed my life, and I want that for you. So, drum roll. You don't need a drum roll. But, um, 
I've been hinting at this all summer. It's, it's no surprise. It's an open secret. But as of this Sunday, we are officially moving our practice of communion from a cracker and juice in front of the stage on Sunday with hundreds of people to a full meal around a table with 10, 20, or 30 people in your Bridgetown community. We will continue to practice the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, but instead of three times on Sunday with hundreds of people in the room, we have 70 or so communities in pretty much every single neighborhood across the urban core of the city in all 70 of those communities. For all of you that are not yet in a community, I just want to speak to that. We love you. You're welcome here. We're so happy that you're here. Our entire staff and pastoral team is here to assist you in your journey whenever you're ready to take the next step into a Bridgetown community. Basics class is coming up in just a few weeks. Sign up online. Show up in a few Sundays. Sit with us for a week or two or three for some in-depth teaching and training for how to do life and community around a table. And then we just connect you with other Bridgetown followers of Jesus who are in your neighborhood or close by. We will continue, for all of you not in a community and just for our Sunday, we will continue to practice it here once in a while, every two or three months, which for a lot of tr traditions, you only do it on Sunday every two or three months or every year. So we're in good company. And, and when we do it here, I think we'll just say, this is a symbol of a symbol, right? This bread, this cracker, and this juice is a symbol of the full meal that is itself a symbol of our life with Jesus, and we just want to grow and mature into the kind of people who are present to Jesus at church on Sunday night, present at the table, my picnic table this coming Tuesday night on the front patio and all week long. That said, our practice for the coming week is all up at practicingtheway.org slash eating and drinking. It is very simple for all of you in a community, which is most of us now, just, and you, have, you already have a weekly meal. The practice is just to repurpose your weekly meal as communion. Um, again, if you're not in a community, sign up for basics or just like grab a few people who follow Jesus and invite them over to your apartment or whatever. You know some other followers of Jesus who live nearby? Thursday night, we're doing the Lord's Supper. We're doing the love feast. Don't, if, they, if they're not here, don't call it that. That will just weird all of them out, right? We're doing the Thanksgiving meal. Like, wait, that, that's weird too. Whatever you want to call it. Communion, call it whatever you want. There's no rule book for how to do this. There's so much space for creativity and room and freedom in the practice on the site for you this week. We have some best practices for kind of the elements to set up. It's all there in the practice. Talk through that with your community. Um, we, have a we have a liturgy in there from, talk about nerd moment, there was this killer archaeological find at the end of the 19th century of this little Greek papyrus that is entitled the Didache in Greek or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It is the oldest church manual we have. We think it dates back to the end of the first century, right around the same time as the writing of Revelation. It's a how-to-do church manual. It's a great little read. You can read it in 10 minutes. It's online for free. Just Google Didache, D-I-D, something um, in Greek. And, um, and it's fantastic. And there's a whole chapter in there for how to practice what they call the, the Thanksgiving and the love feast. So that's in there. There's a prayer over the bread, a prayer over the cup that you do at the beginning. And then there's a prayer at the very end of the meal. For some of you, last word before we end. I just want to call some of you in a Bridgetown, if you're not in a community, again, this is, and I know I'm a broken record here, but we just want to call you again to life around a table with other followers of Jesus. If you've had a rough go of it, we're here to help you and pastor you through that. For those of you in a community, I want to call you to level up when it comes to the meal. So in my community, we eat good. Let me tell you, every Tuesday night, we eat so well. We all pitch in. We all bring something, even those of us that aren't really like culinary, we have like we learn to cook something, even if it's like four different things. We YouTube is a thing. Like Google how to make pasta on YouTube. It's there. <laughs> Who would have thought? It's there. And I just want, especially there's a lot of young people in the room tonight, I want to call you to contribute to your weekly meal. We hear one of the main problems that we have at a staff level in coaching community leaders, like literally one of the top problems right now at our church, is that people do not pitch into the weekly meal. Either they don't bring anything, or it's like eight people bring chips and salsa, and that's all people ever bring. Or it's like, I'll bring the chicken, and there's 20 people there, and they show up with like a little plate of chicken. And it's like, what? I don't eat chicken, so that's fine with me. You eat that gross stuff, but whatever. 
Like, and this is, on a, ser- a little sarcasm, this is a serious problem right now. All across our church, we have communities that don't eat together or can't eat together or three people do all the cooking and then get tired and burned out and people just like riff off. So this is a call in love, older brother call, to level up. Right, if I can learn to cook, have you seen me? Anybody can learn to cook. Just YouTube it, right? Tammy in our home, like, T is the the artist. I'm the sous chef. I'm like organized, I multitask, I set a mean table. You should see how fast I chop the zucchini. It's insane, (laughs) right? And there's about half a dozen meals that I kill it at. I have no idea how to do anything else, but there's about half a dozen. I got dinner tonight, and it is good. It's the same three meals, but it's really good. If I can do it, you can do it. I don't have money. Yeah, you have an iPhone and raw denim, and you just got back from France. I think you can level up from chips and salsa, all right? So I say that. I'm playful, that's not mean at all. I do wanna call you. Step up, contribute to your community, join a community, do life around table, follow Jesus of Nazareth. His life is the best way to be human. Let's all stand to end. I just wanna read this out loud all together from Jesus one more time. Say it with me. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. We love you. There is an after party at Tilt. Speaking of eating and drinking, if you want to cycle down or get on a scooter, don't die. I think I've seen three people die this week on those new scooters. Have fun. Tilt right down on 13th. We love you. Have a great week. See you next time.